now being recorded. All right, well, thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Um, I'm here with Professor David Raymaker in George Washington University's uh, chemistry department, um, who's here to give you a uh, on-the-phone presentation of fuel cells, X-ray absorption, spectrometry, and um, delta X-A-N-E-S. And um, I'm going to pass the phone to him. And if you have any questions, you can ask throughout the conversation or hold them for the end. And um, you have the slides, and throughout the presentation, he'll, uh, he'll say next slide or the number of the slide when we're going to move on to the next one. And feel free to let me know if you have any questions. Here he is. Hello. 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 Oh, good to have you uh, on with us today. I um, have the, uh, hopefully you have the PowerPoint uh, presentation in front of you. And uh, as you can see, the title is Fuel Cells, X-ray Absorption Spectroscopy, and Delta Zanes. I thought that I would do is give a brief background on fuel cells, X-ray absorption, and then specifically what the new technique that we have developed is. Okay? Okay, so if we go to the uh, second slide. Uh, first of all, I wanted to differentiate what a fuel cell is compared to a battery. A fuel cell is an electrochemical device that produces electricity from a continuous external supply of fuel. And, of course, if the fuel runs out, then the, uh, the current uh, runs out. Uh, but you can easily refuel, just like you do a current uh, gasoline car. A battery, on the other hand, is a charge storage device. And so when the charge runs out, the current uh, stops, and uh, in the current volt, for instance, that's um, under development, uh, that might go for, say, 25 to 40 miles, and then you need a recharge, which can take hours. So uh, there's a big difference between a battery and a fuel cell. Let's go to the next slide. Uh, this is an illustration how a proton exchange membrane fuel cell works. Now, there are, of course, different kinds of fuel cells, but the proton exchange membrane is the most common one. It's the one where you have a membrane that separates the anode from the cathode, as pictured there. Uh, the anode and the cathode is usually a platinum catalyst, a very expensive metal, but that's needed to react with your fuel, which in this case usually is the hydrogen fuel. And the cathode, on the other hand, reacts with the oxygen to dissociate the oxygen molecule. So if we could start, uh, say, with the anode, a hydrogen molecule, your fuel comes down on the catalyst, you know, the molecule is dissociated into two hydrogen atoms, and then it gets oxidized, as we refer to it in the chemistry jargon, and so you go to a proton, H+, and an electron. And the proton and the electron has to make its way over to the cathode, um, where it's needed, but it takes two different routes. The proton, H+, goes through the membrane, so the membrane has to be especially constructed or developed so that it only allows protons to go through. Uh, on the other hand, the electron goes through the external circuit, and that's your electrical uh, power. Uh, that's what you want. And then when it gets uh, uh, to the uh, cathode, uh, that proton and electron can reunite uh, to form a hydrogen atom and react with the oxygen atoms, which are on the catalyst, uh, to ultimately form uh, water. 
So the overall net reaction then is hydrogen plus oxygen uh, going to water plus energy. And this is important um, uh, in order to have the fuel cell have a particular uh, potential or voltage. There has to be energy given off. I think most people know if you had a test tube of hydrogen and you brought a match to it, it would explode. Um, that's a lot of energy given off. A fuel cell is a device which does that reaction in a controlled fashion and gets the energy out in the form of electrical current. Okay, so that's the operation of the fuel cell. Now, uh, the fuel cell was invented already in 1839 by Sir, uh, it's on the next graph, by Sir uh, Robert Grove. And uh, already about 40 years later, Jules Verne, a uh, great visionary, said, water is the coal of the future. He said, tell me, will this commercial and industrial development not sooner or later be hindered by a lack of coal? I believe that someday hydrogen and oxygen from which water constitutes will turn into an inexhaustible source of energy. Well, he was a great visionary, but not a very good chemist, because water is not an inexhaustible source of energy, as the reaction shows you. Hydrogen plus oxygen goes to water and energy. The energy has been taken out. So if we need a good fuel, we need the hydrogen, which means we need to go the reverse way, energy putting into water to get the hydrogen back. And, of course, one way to do that would be to use nuclear power or solar power. Uh, so hydrogen is a good fuel. Water, of course, uh, is not a fuel and cannot be used as a fuel. We go to the next slide then. Uh, I would talk a little bit about the history of a fuel cell. As I said, it was invented already in 1839. There was a flurry of research activity. Uh, and then in 1866, the electrical generator came out. In 1876, the internal combustion engine, and they just completely stole the day, if you will. And uh, interest in fuel cells sort of died out after that. There's a reason for that, of course, in that uh, the internal combustion engine was primarily at that point a problem of engineering, uh, friction, where those things could be uh, solved, whereas the fuel cell was more the area of um, nanoscience and catalysis. And, catalysis. and of course, um, that's really only developed in the last uh, 10 years with the big nanoscience program that the federal government has and the like. Uh, another thing is the internal combustion engine converted chemical en energy directly to mechanical energy, which, of course, is what we needed in the automobile. Um, the fuel cell uh, converts it to electrical energy, but then, of course, we can just apply that to an electric motor, and then that goes to mechanical energy as well. But here's a big advantage of the fuel cell electric motor. That is 50 to 80% efficient whereas the internal combustion engine is a very inefficient process. Only about 15 to 25% goes into powering your car. 75 to 80% of the energy in your gasoline is going out as heat in, in, through your tailpipe or through your radiator. And that's just a fundamental aspect of thermodynamics. There's, there's no simple way of dramatically improving that efficiency. So even if we use gasoline in our fuel cell to make electrical current and then ran an electric motor, we could triple our gas mileage or more 
by using the combination of a fuel cell and an electric motor. So that's something uh, to consider. Uh, the hydrogen fuel cell, of course, is environmentally clean. Only water would come out of your tailpipe, whereas with gasoline you have the CO2 with all the problems that it has and the hydrocarbons. And, of course, um, we would hope that our hydrogen would be a renewable fuel. If we use nuclear or solar power, we could take the inexhaustible supply of water and uh, make our hydrogen or, as of course, fossil fuel gasoline, as we're now finding out, is exhaustible. So there's tremendous advantages to going the fuel cell route. So the next slide, if there's these tremendous advantages, then why aren't we there? Well, there's lots of problems. Uh, hydrogen storage, how are we going to uh, store gas in our automobiles? We would need some kind of pressurized tank because hydrogen is a gas. Uh, and maybe we could use some kind of hydrogen adsorbents of some sort. Catalyst poisoning is a huge problem. Our hydrogen gas has to be very clean. If there's even parts per million carbon monoxide in the hydrogen, that will poison your catalyst, and uh, very shortly your uh, fuel cell would be dead. Uh, a much more convenient fuel would be to use methanol or ethanol, but, of course, that has a lot of carbon in it, and that can also poison your platinum catalyst. Sulfur in the air uh, could poison your catalyst. So there's lots of things that can poison the catalyst, and these are problems that um, we still need to work on. The catalyst can also age. Your platinum catalyst is a very small, tiny particle, um, nanometer in size, and uh, with use, those particles tend to grow. Uh, we also tend to make some catalysts as bimetallics, maybe platinum ruthenium, platinum tin, and the second metal tends to separate out. And uh, so we need to have a fuel cell that will run in an automobile, for example, for 100,000 miles or more, and uh, currently catalyst aging is still a very big problem. And then, of course, platinum by itself is very expensive, one of the rare metals. And uh, so we have a huge amount of research going on to still find alternatives to uh, the platinum. So we still have plenty to do, but there are fuel cells on the market. And the next view graph uh, talks about some of these. Um, there are, as it shows there, where you can plug a little tube of methanol into a fuel cell and run your cell phone. Um, there are some laptops that run off of little tiny fuel cells. Uh, the picture on the right uh, shows a huge stack fuel cell. Uh, that picture there labeled the fuel cell might be one square yard and maybe uh, as high as eight feet high. And uh, those can run whole towns. Um, it's interesting that just in today's Washington Post, there was a full-page ad by eTech Technologies, and um, they were advertising their fuel cells for uh, use as running buses and also for um, heating homes inside the energy of the future. So uh, there are definitely companies who are pushing uh, these new areas. To go to the next view graph, it just shows you some of the problems. An old automobile with hydrogen tanks on the top, uh, clearly not an ideal way to store your fuel. 
but then on the right, two current prototype uh, fuel cell cars. Uh, virtually every automobile manufacturer uh, now has prototype uh, cars run with fuel cells. I, I would estimate that there is well over 300 uh, prototype cars on the road, uh, particularly many of them in California. So many of the manufacturers are heading in that direction. Now, um, let's go to X-ray absorption spectroscopy. This is the tool that we use to study fuel cells. Um, one advantage of X-ray absorption spectroscopy is it is photons in, photons out, or perhaps a more usable term, light in, light out. We can shine a light beam right through an operating fuel cell. And from that technique, we can get structural information on the catalyst, and we can get adsorbate information, that is, what's adsorbed on the catalyst. Disadvantage, we need a synchrotron. That's a very expensive, and I'll show you in the next view graph what that involves. And the data is somewhat complex to interpret. Let's go to the next uh, view graph. Uh, we do most of our work up at Brookhaven National Lab, where the National Synchrotron Light Source is located. A synchrotron is a big ring where electrons are in circulating at very high speeds, and light is given off all the way around the ring. And uh, so if you go to the next view graph, this is sort of a map of the National Synchrotron Light Source, and you can see each number, X1 to X27, is a beam line. So uh, researchers can go up to there and uh, reserve a beam line for some weeks and use that as a source of intense X-rays. And this, of course, is run by the Department of Energy, but you can uh, get beam time on the, those beam lines. If you go to the next view graph, you'll see an overview, a picture of, of uh, the facility. You can see that it's very, very complicated, and this is only a small part of the beam line, of, of, of three or four beam lines, and you can see how much equipment is involved at each of the, uh, of the beam lines uh, as we're taking X-ray absorption spectroscopy. Now, if you go to the experimental setup, you can sort of see then where we have the ring, which is the source of the X-rays. That's a beam of light. We pass it through a monochromator. All that does is uh, spread it out into the colors of the rainbow, if you will, in other words, into different wavelengths. And now we can put that beam right through the fuel cell. And uh, it shows you the cell there. Uh, and we have three chambers that count the intensity of the light, the light before it goes through the cell, the light after it comes out of the cell, and then the light at the very end. And so by uh, knowing how much light was absorbed in the cell, we can determine a lot of things about the experiment. And then the next view graph just shows you the setup with the three photon counters and then a blow-up of our little fuel cell, which goes between the I sub 0 and the I sub T, and showing the light beam going right through um, the fuel cell there. Okay, and then the next picture just shows an assembled fuel cell. Uh, the active part of the fuel cell is no thicker than a piece of uh, saran wrap or wax paper, and you have metal plates on each side. We have hollowed out 
the metal plate where the beam goes through so you can see the hole uh, where the beam uh, would go through. Next view graph. Okay, here is where I want to describe the actual technique that we have developed and also contrast that with a technique that has been out there for 20-some years. So at the top is a, a word called EXAFS. That's an acronym that stands for Extended X-ray Absorption Fine Structure. And you can see the little red square under the word EXAFS. That uh, little wiggly data is what has been utilized in the past. That is isolated. Now uh, we do what is called a Fourier transform, and then we fit a model function to that, and that gives us the structure of the catalyst. This is a technique that has been developed over the last 20 years and is a well-known technique. At the bottom, then, is the new technique. We take what is called the Zanes, that stands for X-ray Absorption Near Edge Structure. So you can see the bottom is X-ray absorption near edge structure. The top is extended X-ray absorption fine structure. So we are using that uh, near the edge where it first comes on. And what we have developed is a way of isolating the effect of an adsorbate. So uh, the little illustration third uh, from the left shows that if there is, for instance, a molecule on the platinum, which is our catalyst, it might be carbon monoxide, might be hydrogen or whatever, we get a small difference between that uh, spectrum or signal uh, versus when there's nothing absorbed. That difference can be rather small, but if we take the difference between those, we get something that we call the delta zanes or the delta mu. And that is where we get our information. So if you go then to the next view graph, in order to figure out what we are seeing, I show you some theoretical calculations on top, something labeled theory, and the experimental uh, on the bottom. And so, for instance, the top shows you what the signal would look like if there was carbon monoxide on the platinum, or if there was oxygen or OH on the platinum, and these are critical uh, molecules on your catalyst. CO is a huge poison. We don't want carbon monoxide there. On the other hand, um, oxygen or OH are critical molecules for cleaning off the CO. And you can see then on the bottom in the experimental data, as we change the voltage of our fuel cell, how the CO signature is decreasing and the oxygen OH signature is increasing. Nobody has ever seen this type of thing before without our delta zanes approach. And this is occurring inside of an operating fuel cell on the critical part of the fuel cell, namely the catalyst. So what we can do then is we can plot the amplitudes of the signature for CO and OH, for example. And if you go to the next view graph, we can show three different platinum ruthenium catalysts. And these platinum ruthenium catalysts typically have small little ruthenium islands on top of the platinum particles. And I show three uh, different the coverage, for example, of CO and the coverage of uh, 
of hydrogen and the coverage of oxygen on this catalyst as a function of the potential. And you can see that the different catalysts give me different coverages. And so now with the X-ray absorption, we can look at the structure of the catalyst. Then we can look at what molecules are absorbed on the catalyst and for the first time correlate those two. This has never been able to be done uh, before. So now we can answer such questions as why does platinum ruthenium, this is the next view graph then, CO poisoning of platinum catalyst, uh, why does platinum ruthenium work better than platinum? What is the ruthenium doing to keep the carbon monoxide uh, off of the platinum, which is a poison? And people have proposed a bifunctional mechanism, the ligand mechanism, the hydrogen replacement mechanism, and no one knew which mechanism was operating or, or when. Uh, and now, uh, because we can see what gases are on the surface, because we can see exactly what the structure of our catalyst is, we can determine uh, which mechanism is important. And, and we find, for example, that all three mechanisms can be operative depending on the size of your ruthenium islands. Uh, if you have big ruthenium islands, then the ligand mechanism is uh, more active. If you have small ruthenium islands, the bifunctional mechanism is more active. If you put tin on the platinum instead of ruthenium, the hydrogen replacement mechanism is more uh, responsible for the cleaning of the uh, carbon monoxide off of the catalyst. So we have uh, a, a now structure um, mechanism correlation which we've never had before. We can ask also question two. People have wondered why platinum ruthenium works better when I use methanol as my fuel, but on the other hand, platinum molybdenum works better when I use hydrogen uh, reformate, which is hydrogen with a little CO um, in it. And uh, so we can answer those questions now for the first time because we have this new information. So in summary, many problems still remain to be solved uh, before we're going to have complete full commercialization of fuel cells, particularly in the automobile. And I outlined some of the problems. But the Delta Zanes technique that we developed is a very powerful new way to see what is on our catalyst and correlate the adsorbate with the structure and understand how these catalysts are working. I'd be glad to take any questions you might have. Anybody still there? Yeah, we're still here. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I had to think. <laughs> it's hard. Yes. Um, but you can do this. This is, this is basically a research device which gets to the Brookhaven. You don't have a small say, uh, laboratory-scale tabletop device where, where industrial companies, for example, could do this sort of thing in their own laboratory, correct? Uh, that is correct. X-ray absorption uh, spectroscopy requires a synchrotron, so you cannot just do that in a small laboratory setup. That is a disadvantage, yes. Yeah. So do you, do you think there will be a, is there any, any hope to expect that you might be developing a, a device that would fit, you know, um, for industrial use? So you wouldn't have to go to Brookhaven or anything like that? Well, uh, if you're going to use X-ray absorption spectroscopy, no. Um, but many um, industrial labs uh, do uh, have their even their own beam lines. Um, government labs, uh, for instance, at the synchrotron, 
as I showed you, there are 20 beam lines. Um, many of, for instance, uh, United Technologies, uh, which I indicated had a full-page uh, ad in today's Washington Post, uh, they have uh, basically collaborated with uh, other people and have their beam line. Uh, the Naval Research Lab, which has a huge fuel cell program, has their own beam line. General Motors, um, they have beam time. They don't have their own beam time, but they have a beam line, and I'm involved in the work that they do. So um, many uh, industries are facing the fact that if they really want to uh, see what's going on, uh, they're going to have to rent a beam line in order to do this technique. Did, did you say that UTC has a device like this of their own, their own labs in, in, in hospitals? Well, no, they, they rent... In other words, they go to Brookhaven, so they have a beam line at at uh, Brookhaven where they can take their data, just like I do. Um, is Brookhaven the only synchrotron of its kind in the U.S. or are there others? Oh, there are plenty. There's uh, the advanced photon source at Argonne. Uh, there's another big uh, uh, light source at Berkeley. There's one at Stanford. Um, and then, of course, in Europe, there's Grenoble Hassey Lab. Uh, England has got one. So there's maybe a dozen uh, uh, synchrotrons around the world. Have, have you worked with uh, uh, paid for or subsidized part or whatever by DOE? Have, have, have I worked with what? How does the program at DOE? Uh, I do not myself have uh, funding uh, from DOE. Uh, my funding has come uh, primarily from the Navy. Uh, the Naval Research Lab has uh, funded uh, much of my work, and they have a big fuel cell program um, there so that uh, they are interested in funding this work. I don't mean monopolize this stuff. <laughs> Maybe somebody else would like to say something. Any other questions? I've got a couple more. But okay, continue. <laughs> I, I think I've been monopolizing the conversation here. So, uh, well, um, I, I think, uh, well, two things, I guess. Um, is there a paper available on your work that would describe this thing? And in, 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 I'm, I'm not a scientist or engineer, but just, I sort of try to uh, pick out things that I can understand for papers. So if there would be one uh, that would give it some of these details that you just described, I couldn't take a look that fast. Sure. Yes. Uh, well, I, certainly there are uh, several uh, papers. Uh, I mean, one doesn't develop a technique like this, uh, you know, overnight. So I've, I've worked on this for some years, and probably I have about uh, half a dozen uh, publications in academic uh, journals, e even more than that. Um, and just recently, uh, you know, the community is accepting the technique. They're seeing, they're seeing its potential, and so that's why I indicated I got involved with General Motors, uh, and, and we put in a proposal to DOE together, and other labs are starting to pick it up, like Northeastern, uh, Argonne National Lab, uh, in Europe, uh, ETH in Darmstadt in Germany uh, are picking up the technique. Uh, and so uh, this is why we thought this was an appropriate time that people are recognizing this technique and it's starting to take off. But I have published uh, papers on the technique and would be glad to uh, uh, send those to you. Well, what, what, I don't want to 
successful than me because I had 60 more stories to write. I understood, understood. <laughs> it's a one recent overview paper that describes your work specifically, uh, the second title is to, to, to this presentation, and preferably a, a simple overview, uh, sure. you know, a pitch for funding or something like that to, to non-experts. That would be great. Very helpful if you could email me that. Sure, I can. I, in fact, I, I published a, a very short article in a magazine-type thing. It's called Interface Magazine of the Electrochemical Society. I published that with uh, a professor at Northeastern uh, on the technique, and that might be a, a short uh, and, and a, a sufficiently uh, written article for you to have, so I can send that to you. I'm not sure. The thing is, it was really a newsletter, basically, and uh, we don't have that many pages, only 10, 12 pages every month. So it might become kind of a very compressed, short piece. But Understood. At least I'd like to see what, you know, I'd like to see it in writing so I can quote exactly and quote uh, precisely rather than so we write my notes, which are sort of all over the place right now. Sure. Understood. I'll, I'll send that to you. Be great. Okay. And that's, that's Peter, correct? Peter Hoffman, right. Yeah, okay. I think I have the, la the name here. Now, let me ask you a question, which has only indirectly to do with this. I saw this picture of Carl Cordage on his fuel cell bike uh, and, his, and his old Austin I-40. Did you by any chance get that from my first hydrogen book, uh, The Forever Fuel? Um, the, uh, uh, the picture of the fuel cell? Oh, Carl Cordage on his hydrogen bike in New York around 1960, and it's this... Uh, fuel cell um, uh, English car, the A40. Oh. I, I used it in, in uh, I used a picture of my book, a couple of books of mine, well, one at least, and um, as far as I know, they aren't that widely distributed, so I'm just curious. <laughs> I see. I see. To be honest with you, I collaborate with another professor, and uh, she found that picture, so I don't even know where um, where the source of that picture is. She found it. You're indicating that you had used that in a book before? Well, I, I wrote a book back in 1981 called The Forever Fuel. I see. Hydrogen. It's a labor's book. It's a journalistic book. I'm not sure. And I think I used it there, and I think I used it in my, in my last rewrite of the same book, which was now called uh, Tomorrow's Energy, Hydrogen Fuel Cells Process. Okay. Uh, which just came out in 2001 MIT Press. Okay. And um, I'm not sure it's in there, but, but it certainly was in the first one, I think. So. Yeah, well, that's fascinating. <laughs> well, I, I should uh, probably uh, uh, talk to my colleague and find out and, and give credit for where that picture came from. You're, you're right on that, so... I work with Christina Roth in, uh, at the Technical University of Darmstadt in Germany. She spent a sabbatical with me this fall, and I'm going to be visiting her this spring. We share graduate students, so. Okay. No. Yeah. As I say, if I could get that, that paper, you know, we might be able to make a. a as I say, we just be a fairly compact story in the newsletter, and, and uh, did you say you work with General Motors now? I, I have written a proposal uh, with them, and uh, we're still waiting on word uh, whether that's uh, going to be uh, funding or not from the Department of Energy. Uh, if that is funded, then I will be uh, collaborating uh, with them, uh, and also I work uh, with people at the Naval Research Lab. Yeah. Uh, um, well, what's your expectation? Go to the tangent perhaps a little bit. 
What are your expectations about GM continuing hydrogen and fuel cell research? <laughs> that depends, of course, on their future, <laughs> right. and I can't uh, predict that. Um, I would imagine that if they went bankrupt or whatever, that that the future would be quite limited. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I, talk, I know quite a few people. I used to buy them a really well, and people like that. So, so um, um, uh, my impression is that they, that they think the head of the fuel cell laboratory up in up near Rochester. Uh, Matthew Frank, he just wrote recently a piece of a local paper saying, sort of implying that they think it's going to be going on, but, you know, who knows? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, I think that's basically it for me, so. Okay. Is there anybody else on the line? Ah, I guess the uh, Julia must have uh, uh, parted. So, well, it was good, uh, good talking to you. Yeah, that's, yeah, well, thanks very much. It's very interesting. Okay, let me uh, give you, uh, I appreciate your questions, and let me give you back to uh, Nick. Pardon? Perfect, thank you. Oh, let me give you my contact information. Uh, you can call me at any time at area code 202-994-6934. And then you can also email me at raymaker, R-A-M-A-K-E-R, at... Yeah, R A M A K E R. Right, okay. And then at G W U dot E D U. Okay. Okay. Yeah, well, we we have a website for a newsletter, which is basically www dot letter dot com. H as in hydrogen, F as in fuel, C as in cell, letter, all one word. Okay. H F C L A T T E R dot com. Oh, good. I'll look at that. Yeah, we have, we have been. You're very reasonably well known among the hydrogen community. Sure, sure. Uh, well, but maybe not that well known, but still. Anyway, if you take a look at that, you'll know who are, who we are, what we do. Right. Definitely, we'll do that. Okay. Okay then. Thanks very much. Yes, I'll uh, I'll give you uh, back to Nick just in case he has anything to add. Okay, fine. Thank you. Okay, thank you. One moment.